You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World. This is the last section, and it is, has two addresses that concern the national character of the Russian people. Translated by Simon Blacksland de Lange, this is number 11, an address for Russians attending the lecture cycle, entitled Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature, given in Helsinki on the 11th of April, 1912. Uh, for your information, this is I have recorded this before, and it is uh, in the appendix of this, uh, uh, this lecture cycle given in Helsinki in 1912, in case it sounds familiar to you. But this is a different translation. End of readers aside. As we try to enter more and more deeply into theosophical life and knowledge, we often feel the need to ask ourselves, why do we have such a wish to find theosophical ideas in the intellectual life of our time? Such a question comes to our mind quite naturally and effortlessly, and the word that then clarifies and more than clarifies our feelings in this regard is the word responsibility. Responsibility. This word is more than adequate to exclude any thought from our mind that suggests that we are involved with theosophy out of some kind of need to satisfy a personal longing. If we then try to understand, even without formulating our thoughts very clearly, what this word responsibility signifies for us in relation to the spiritual impulse of theosophy, we will come to see ever more clearly that we owe it to present-day humanity and our best efforts to serve it to concern ourselves with theosophy. We should not study theosophy purely for our own pleasure or in order to satisfy some kind of personal longing by doing so. But on the contrary, we must feel that it is something that present-day humanity needs if the process of human evolutionary development is to go forward. We need to keep firm in mind that without theosophy, or whatever we may like to call it, without that spiritual life that we envisage, earthly humanity will be faced with a desolate future, a truly desolate future. I say this for the simple reason that all the spiritual impulses of the past that have been given to mankind are exhausted, have gradually fulfilled their potential, and are unable to bring new seeds for human evolution. If only the old impulses were to continue to have an influence, the future prospect would inevitably be one where, to an unprecedented degree, technology of a purely external kind will not only overpower and outwardly overwhelm human beings, but will paralyze them and take them over even to the point of utter destruction because it will drive from the human soul everything of a religious, scientific, philosophical, and artistic nature, and also any kind of higher moral feeling. People will become something like living automatons if new spiritual impulses are unable to take hold. Thus, when we think of theosophy, 
We must feel that we have been led by our karma to have some awareness of mankind's need for new impulses. With this in mind, we may ask ourselves what each one of us, with our particular questions and abilities, can do out of this overall sense of responsibility. In order to answer this deeply felt question, it may perhaps be particularly instructive for you, my dear friends, to consider the way in which theosophy came into the world in recent times and how it has developed over the course of the last few decades until now. We should never forget that there is something of the nature of a cultural miracle about the way that the word theosophy came to prominence amidst the modern age. This spiritual miracle is connected with a personality who is strongly linked to you, my dear friends, in that she did in a certain sense have her spiritual roots from among your own people. I am referring to Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. No one in Western Europe would dispute the thought that the body in which the individuality who was in this incarnation called Helena Petrovna Blavatsky was dwelling could only have derived from Eastern Europe and specifically from Russia, for she had all the Russian characteristics. But she was taken away from you through circumstances of a quite particular kind, in that the particular karmic conditions of the present time led her to the West. Let us consider for a moment what kind of extraordinary cultural miracle she represented. In many ways, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky was a figure who throughout her life remained like a child, indeed like a real child. Never at any point did she learn to think logically, nor did she learn to keep her passions, desires, and longings under the least degree of restraint, and at any time they were prone to extreme degrees of excess. And she had very little scientific training of any kind. Through this personality, and it was perhaps inevitable that it was through the medium of a personality who was chaotic, confused as well as colorful, a comprehensive body of the most sublime eternal wisdom appertaining to humanity was revealed to the world. Anyone who is well versed in these matters will find in Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's works elements of wisdom, truth, and knowledge which were completely incomprehensible to the intellect and soul of Blavatsky herself. If one considers the facts without prejudice, it is absolutely clear that as regards everything she wrote, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's intellectual faculties were merely the means whereby great and significant spiritual powers were able to communicate with mankind. It is equally clear that no one in Western Europe could have been the recipient of these impressions in the way that they needed to be received at the beginning of the last third of the nineteenth century. It needed the quite particular nature of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, which was on the one hand selfless, almost devoid of self, and on the other hand thoroughly self-centered and egotistic, in order that what indeed occurred could be brought about by higher spiritual powers. The selfless part of her nature was necessary because a Western European mind would have transformed what had been revealed to it into its own thought forms, its own intellectual substance, while the self-centered aspect was also necessary because amidst the crudely materialistic Western European way of life there was no alternative 
but to clothe the tender hands whose task it was to nurture and cultivate the occultism of the modern age with iron fists forged from such an extreme temperament. It is a remarkable phenomenon. But, my dear friends, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky made her way to the West. She went to that part of the civilized world, which, with the exception of America, is as regards its whole particular nature, structure, and configuration, the most thoroughly materialistic area of our present time, and which in its language and its thinking lives to an extreme degree in materialistic thoughts and feelings. It would take me too long to explain which power it was that led Helena Petrovna Blavatsky to England, and so we see that the wealth of occultism that came so miraculously to expression through a medium, and I am not implying any spiritistic connotations, was directed initially toward the west of Europe. Within this Western European context, the destiny of this occultism was sealed in a certain direction, for with the founding of the Theosophical Movement in this materialistic European West, a significant karmic obligation also came to fulfillment. Western Europe has a considerable karmic debt, and it cannot penetrate the mysteries without this karmic debt becoming apparent in some way or other. Whenever occultism becomes part of a situation, karma is immediately intensified and forces are brought to the surface which otherwise remain hidden. What I now have to say is said in order to describe the actual situation and is not intended as a criticism. In the course of carrying out something that was an historical necessity, the European West committed innumerable injustices against the bearers of the spiritual culture of olden times, the bearers of the ancient occult mysteries, as a result of which these spiritual forces have become ossified and have ceased to be available, although they live on in the depths of the soul. This is indeed the case in India and South Asia. As soon as occult impulses came to Western Europe, a reaction immediately began to manifest itself against the spiritual forces active in the depths of Indian culture, and it became impossible it had already become so in Blavatsky's time, to sustain what certain spiritual powers had intended to be the spiritual movements necessary for our time. This simply became impossible. The intention had been to give mankind a wealth of occult teachings which could be suitable for all people, for all hearts, teachings to which each and every one could respond, but since it had become necessary to transplant the impulse to Western Europe, an egotistical reaction came about. Those spiritual powers that wanted to give the world a new impulse, irrespective of any kind of human differentiations, were thrust into the background, and India, whose occultism had initially been suppressed, took karmic revenge by pervading at its first opportunity the occultism that had appeared in the West with its own national egotistic occultism. This occurred during Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's lifetime. It was already happening when she was formulating the great truths and wisdom contained in her book titled The Secret Doctrine. Her first wor work, titled Isis Unveiled, demonstrates the chaotic, illogical, 
passionate and confused nature of her being, but throughout the book there is the indication that powers wanting to guide her toward a universally human purpose were watching over her. The secret doctrine, in addition to its undisputed elements of greatness, is pervaded throughout by particular human interests emanating from certain occult centers, which do not have universal human interests in view, but more parochial interests. Modern Tibetan, Indian, and also Egyptian initiations are invariably focused on more parochial concerns and wish merely to take revenge on the Western world for suppressing Eastern occultism and for the fact that the West conquered the East through materialistic means. It did conquer the East through factors of this nature, but only insofar as Christianity was received into the truly progressive stream of human evolution. Christianity did not reach the East from Asia, nor did it emanate from Asia to the South. The direction of its movement was toward the West. Now, my dear theosophical friends, you may well say that this is all fine. The West went on to accept Christianity, and since Christianity is a stage in the advancement of mankind, it is only natural that the West should have been victorious over the East. If only this were so, if this is how things really were, the consequences would indeed follow, but it is not. Christianity, which has come into the world after hundreds and thousands of years of preparation, has never yet prevailed anywhere on the earth. And anyone who believes that he could, in any real sense, represent the Christ principle and the Christ impulse in our time, would have succumbed to indescribable arrogance. What is it that has really happened? Simply that the peoples of the West have embraced certain purely external features of Christianity, taken possession of Christ's name, and clothed their old cultures that were indigenous before Christianity came to Europe, warlike cultures that have been transformed into modern industrialism, with Christ's name. Does Christ truly reign in Christian Europe? No one who belongs to an occult movement would ever accept that Christ rules over Christian Europe. Rather would he say that you speak of Christ, in quotes, but you are really referring to what the ancient populations of Central Europe meant when they spoke of their god Saxnot. The symbol of the crucifix hovers over the peoples of Europe, but in a certain sense what really rules over them are the traditions of the god Saxnot whose symbol is the erstwhile short Saxon sword, which embodied the expansion of material interests, for that was the particular calling of the European tribes. Readers aside, Saxnot is spelled S-A-X-N-O-T, end of readers aside. This preoccupation, therefore, also gave rise to the noblest flowering of materialistic culture, chivalry. In no other culture is there anything resembling the chivalry of Western culture. It would not occur to anyone to compare the heroes of the Trojan War with medieval knights. So Christ is not much in evidence in people's lives. They merely speak about him. Thus when Westerners speak about Christ, Eastern peoples feel that they, the Eastern peoples, know far more about the spiritual understanding of the world and about the mysteries of existence. 
The Eastern peoples are well aware of this. It is not difficult to see that the Eastern peoples are well able to appreciate their superiority in a spiritual respect. What do most Western people do today when mysteries of existence are being revealed? Well, we sit together in very small groups when we speak of the all-prevailing spiritual powers and mysteries which surround us everywhere, as we did yesterday evening. As far as ordinary Western Europeans are concerned, this is sheer folly or madness, for they are still unable to understand Paul's words to the effect that what is wisdom to God is often foolishness to human beings, and what people regard as foolish is regarded as wisdom by God. And only those whose minds have been infected by Western Europeans in the East would dream of quibbling in the least about the deep truths concerning the spiritual mysteries of the cosmos that I have been trying to reveal here, were they to hear them. For to those involved with the spiritual life of the East, such things as I was saying yesterday, for example, would be regarded as self-evident. So we should not be surprised that when they are assailed by Europeans, these Eastern peoples experience this as if they were being attacked by a herd of wild animals and defend themselves accordingly, while not feeling offended by behavior which they regard as the fruit of an inferior attitude. For the reasons that I have indicated, whether or not they are justified is of no relevance at this point. And from the traditional Eastern point of view, we Westerners are regarded by adherents of Brahmanism, for example, as beings who are quite obviously inferior. If we turn from Brahmanism and consider, for instance, the cultures of Central Asia, of Tibet and China, cultures which will, in the near future, have a significance for the world that would seem inconceivable to people today, even though if we develop an awareness of this situation and realize that the souls of many of Zarathustra's pupils are even now incarnated in these cultures, it will not be long before this happens. We will need to take these matters very seriously. We shall also be able to see that in everything that Helena Petrovna Blavatsky communicated, occultists from India, Tibet and Egypt were endeavoring to impart their own heritage of wisdom through her soul, although as regards its essential nature, this wisdom belongs to a previous era of human evolution. Indeed, we must recognize this outdated nature of the Oriental wisdom in Blavatsky's teachings. We should, moreover, not deny the significance of the fact that were Chinese culture to break its fetters and flood the Western world, it would bring with it a spirituality that in many respects is the unadulterated successor of ancient Atlantis. The effect of this would be equivalent to something that had been held back and has the capacity to spread throughout the world, being released. And on a small scale, this is what the old culture of India has taken the opportunity to do. As a result, my dear theosophical friends, there was an initial instance of the application of a principle that is of significance for any occultist. And this meant that the theosophical movement was no longer a suitable instrument for the further evolution of European culture. Every occultist is familiar with this principle, 
which states that no special interest of whatever kind should ever be allowed to override the general interests of mankind either amongst the guiding powers of occultism or on the part of anyone active in an occult movement. It is impossible to be effective in the occult realm if a particular interest outweighs the universal interest of humanity as a whole. The moment that a parochial interest enters the occult domain in place of universally human interests, the way lies open for genuine errors to occur. It was therefore possible at that time for all sorts of errors to enter the theosophical movement. Because of the way that England and India are related on a karmic level, the opportunity arose for those sublime powers that were present at the outset of the theosophical movement to be falsely impersonated. For it is quite normal in occultism that powers bent on pursuing their own special interests take on the form of those who have previously given the true impulses. Thus, from a certain time, in the unfolding of the theosophical movement, it became completely impossible simply to accept everything that was going on within it. And it was karmically decreed that it became ever less possible to do so. As a result, when we were called upon to join forces with the theosophical movement, there was nothing for it but to return to its original sources, which, as we can clearly state, are of a universally human nature and not serving any particular interest. You may therefore have seen that we try in Central Europe to approach the occult sources in such a way that you will not find anything associated with any special interest in what you encounter. If you compare whatever in Central Europe is tinged with special interests with what you know of the theosophy that we pursue here, these two elements are mutually incompatible. Apart from the fact that my books are written in German, and they have to be written in a language of some kind, you will find nothing distinctively German in this theosophy, nothing that is in some way connected with the outward traditions of Central Europe. Whenever there is a tendency to connect theosophy with interests of a parochial nature, you immediately arrive at an impossible situation. It has been the particular task of Central Europe to free theosophy from the specialized characteristics that it has received in the European West. It was our mission to release it from all trace of such interests. And the further you delve into such matters, you will find that I was myself in a position to separate everything that I was enabled to bring of a theosophical nature from any sort of parochial interest. There is, my dear theosophical friends, something symbolic about the fact that I needed only to allow myself to be guided by what lived as a direct impulse in my present incarnation, and I trust that I shall not be misunderstood as I am merely stating what actually occurred, in that those people who were the physical bearers of the blood that represents my line of descent originated from the German part of Austria, and I could not be born there. I was actually born in a Slavic region, which was completely alien to the whole environment from which my ancestors came. Thus, from the very beginning of my present incarnation, and I am merely offering a characteristic example, it was symbolically impressed upon me that in Central Europe 
our task was to extricate theosophy from any kind of special interest, so that in Central Europe it may indeed appear before us as a goddess, as a divine being who has been set free from human qualities, and who has, on an ongoing basis, just as much to do with people living in one place as with those living somewhere else. This ideal of ours, my dear theosophical friends, will, for all its apparent simplicity, need to be in the forefront of our minds, since it is more difficult to implement it than to talk about it. It must stand before us as our ideal of truth and sincerity, unalloyed divine truth. If we make efforts of this kind, we may perhaps not for ourselves, but on behalf of that impersonal quality that Central Europe can contribute to the whole mission of Europe, find the path whereby this divine theosophy can find its way to the East. And if I now go on to describe how theosophy has taken hold in the West, is being transmitted through Europe, and now needs to come to the East, I should like once again to give strong emphasis to the word responsibility, to having a real sense of responsibility. The cultures in the world evolve in such a way that one culture develops with another as though within a spiritual sheath. One culture forms a connection with another. Because theosophy in Central Europe had to be so impersonal, its spiritual character has come to be one that is devoid of attachment to any special interests. As a result, my dear theosophical friends, there is something aloof about this theosophy, an aloofness that comes from being untouched by such interests. And so it will not appeal to those who cannot open their hearts to something that does not serve some kind of particular interest. However, the spiritual quality that is possessed by this theosophy can indeed be found by souls who thirst and long for it. And at this point I may say, my dear theosophical friends, that I have from the spiritual world itself become acquainted with a soul that has a great longing for the spirit that comes to expression through theosophy. I came to know this soul in the purely spiritual world. If we ascend in the sequence of the hierarchies, to the individual folk spirits and speak amongst the various folk spirits of the folk souls, amidst the folk souls who are, so to speak, still young and who must evolve further, we find the Russian folk soul. I know that this Russian folk soul longs for the spirit that finds expression in theosophy. It longs for it with all the forces which it can muster. I have been speaking here of a sense of responsibility because you, my dear theosophical friends, are children of this Russian folk soul. It exerts its power and influence within you, and you have a responsibility toward it. This responsibility is something that you must learn. Do not take it amiss if I say that this Russian folk soul has frequently had occasion to tell me many, many things. The most tragic of these communications was what the Russian folk soul was able to tell me around the year 1900. It appeared in a particularly tragic light at that time because what I was able to see then was something that I could rightly interpret only long afterward, namely, that this Russian folk soul is understood today to a very limited degree. In Western Europe we have learned a great deal from Russia, 
and there is much that has made an enormous impression upon us. We have become familiar with the great impulses of Tolstoy, the deep psychological insights of Dostoevsky, and, latterly, the figure of Soloviev, a man who, if we become aware of what he is really saying, always gives us the impression that what he writes is who he is. And we see his writings in their true light only if we sense that the Russian folk soul is standing behind him. Moreover, the Russian folk soul has far more to say than Soloviev himself manages to say, for there is in this far too much of what has been assimilated from Western Europe. Think, my dear friends, of this word responsibility, and call to mind that you have this task of making yourselves worthy of the Russian folk soul, and that you need to recognize its longing for impersonal theosophy. When you have come to recognize theosophy in what lives in your innermost impulses, you will have all sorts of questions which can only arise from within a Russian soul, questions that address the spiritual questions of theosophy. I have experienced so much in the way of noble, lofty and beautiful feelings that have come toward me from Eastern Europe, so much true human love and goodness, compassion and overflowing feelings as can be attributed only to a delicate and intimate observation of what lives in the world and an intensely personal relationship with the ruling powers of existence. Out of such deeply intimate, beautiful and noble feelings, many questions have been put to me by those belonging to the Russian people, questions which must be asked, because unless they are answered, mankind will not be able to go on living in the future. Questions that can only come from Eastern Europe have hitherto been posed to me only by the Russian folk soul on higher planes. I often felt obliged to think that the children of this folk soul still have a long way to go before they understand their folk soul, before they understand what this folk soul really longs for and how much still separates them from it. Do not therefore hold back from seeking the path to your folk soul, for you will find it if that is what you really want. It is from your folk soul that you will discover those questions which must be answered if mankind is to have a future. But do not be afraid of reaching beyond personal interests, for you need to be mindful of the great responsibility that you have toward the Russian folk soul. For in future the folk souls will need the human beings who are their children to attain their objectives. And do not forget one thing, that power which can support a person at the highest level and can lead him to the most beautiful and most radiant heights of the world is most exposed to the danger of falling prey to errors. What you need to do, my dear theosophical friends, is to imbue the spiritual domain with soul. You can do this because the Russian folk soul has infinite depths and possibilities for the future. But it is necessary that you are conscious that the soul element that is able to raise itself to the spirit and in this way to pervade it exposes you to the great danger of losing yourself in purely personal factors and of being confined by them. The fact is that individual personal factors are reinforced when nourished by concerns of the soul. 
you will not be confronted by the obstacles that so frequently manifest themselves to Western and Central Europe. You have little inclination towards skepticism, which affects you only through Western influences. You will develop a certain feeling for distinguishing truths from untruth and dishonesty in the realm of occultism, where truth and charlatanism are so closely entangled with one another. Skepticism and cynicism do not pose any danger to you. Your danger will be that the powerful soul qualities of your personalities have a tendency to surround you with astral clouds which prevent you from reaching through to the objectively spiritual domain. Your fire and your warmth are well able to envelop you with a cloud-like aura which prevents the spirit from gaining access to you. Your very enthusiasm for the spirit hinders it from finding its way to you. But bear in mind that you have the great advantage, and I mean this in the ideal spiritual sense, of having the legitimate special interest that it is your destiny, that is, it is the destiny of your folk soul, to be able to receive theosophy, which people in Central Europe had to embrace as a divine power, elevated above all human concerns, as a special interest of the Russian people, in the way that no other people can receive it, as something that you can cherish and cultivate as your very own. For through your destiny you are well adapted to inspire the spirit with soul. This has often been said in our circles, but it is up to you to take the first possible opportunity not only to develop feeling and will, but also in a quite particular way to cultivate energy and persistence, and, to speak in practical terms, to say less about how theosophy should be in the West than how it should be in Russia and elsewhere, and what is good in one situation or another, but rather resolve to unite yourselves with theosophy with all your heart and soul. The rest will follow from this. It will surely follow. This is, my dear friends, something of what I wanted to say to you, and I wanted to say it because whenever I am asked to speak, I am aware of the sense of responsibility that we people of our time have toward theosophy. In the West, people should have the feeling that they are committing a sin against humanity if they are able to receive something of theosophy and do not want it, reject it, a sin against humanity. It is sometimes very difficult to understand for one must have an almost transcendental sense of duty, my dear friends, if one is to have such a feeling of responsibility toward mankind. Your folk soul tells you that it entrusts you with this obligation. It has already taken on this obligation toward mankind on your behalf. You need only find your way to it. You need only to allow your thoughts, feelings and will impulses to speak. And if you have this feeling of responsibility toward the folk soul, you will at the same time be fulfilling this obligation toward mankind. It is for this reason that you are placed geographically between Western Europe, which must embrace theosophy, but for which it cannot be a personal matter to the degree that it is for you, and the Asiatic East, which has had occultism and spiritual culture since ancient times. You would perhaps never manage to fulfill your task in relation to the spiritual culture of mankind 
in this difficult situation in which you have been placed, if you had to think only of your obligation toward humanity. For the temptations become absolutely enormous if you bear in mind that you have on the one side the European West, which has caused many of the children of your folk soul to be untrue to themselves. Indeed, we may have the feeling that a large part of what has been written by Russians and then brought to us in the West has nothing to do with the Russian folk soul, but is a reflection of all manner of Western phenomena. The second temptation will come from the East, when the power of its spiritual culture emerges. It will then be your duty to know that for all the greatness of this spiritual culture of the East, people in our present age have to say to themselves, our task is not to bring the past into the future, but rather new impulses. We should not simply embrace any kind of spiritual impulse emanating from the East, but cultivate what the West can itself bring forth from spiritual sources. If you fulfill your obligations toward your folk soul, the time will come when Europe will begin to understand the essential nature of the Christ impulse within the spiritual evolution of mankind. It would be my wish, my dear friends, that through everything that I have sought to say, and through these words, and above all, through whatever in these words you are able to transform into impulses of your own, you will endeavor not merely to feel that theosophy is something of great significance, but above all else, take theosophy into your deeds and the will impulses of your soul and direct your lives and actions accordingly. The end of Lecture 11